All right, so tonight we're looking at Revelation's Lake of Fire. Some people have said that this topic, yep, that this topic has driven more people out of the church, Christian churches, than any other topic. Now, I don't know how to prove whether or not that's true, but I think it, it goes to say that a lot of people have a hard time worshiping a God that says, I'm a God of love, but if you don't follow me, I'll burn you forever and ever and ever and ever. And so that's what we want to look at. What does the book of Revelation have to say about this idea of an ever-burning hell? And we need to be very careful how we look at this topic, because there are some words and there's some phrases that, uh, if we're not careful, can lead us to that interpretation. But I hope tonight, and we're going to pray the Holy Spirit will lead us in our study tonight, I pray it will be very clear that that's really not what the text is saying. Um, and you hopefully won't have to take my word for it. In fact, I hope you don't, but I hope you take God's word for it uh, as we see what it has to say in the Bible, because that's the, the only authority for us, right? Uh, we're not so interested in what man thinks. You're not interested in what I think. And you're not here because of me. You're here because you want to dig into the Word. And uh, so we have that in common. The Word is powerful. A double-edged sword, isn't it? And so we're going to get into the Word. But before we, we get into the Word, we always should pray. And I would challenge you to do that every time in your own study. Whenever you're looking at anything, say a prayer. <clears throat> doesn't have to be long. doesn't have to be drawn out. A simple prayer that just says, Lord, send your Holy Spirit to make your Word plain that I might see what you have for me to understand today. Right? And we, we really haven't talked about this, but uh, we could assume it, but I don't want to assume it, so I'm just going to talk about it now. I wasn't planning to talk about it, but I hope you're taking some time every day in God's Word. Every day. Well, how much time? I wouldn't worry about how much time. Just get into God's Word, and before you know it, you're going to wish you had more time. And then you're going to wish you had more time. And then you're going to find, you're gonna, at some point, you're going to have to set a timer to go off. Otherwise, you're going to miss out on everything else you have on your schedule that day. And you have to get, start getting up earlier. So don't worry about the time, okay? Um, just spend time in God's Word each and every day and pray each and every day, too. It doesn't have to be at the end. It can be throughout. Anytime you feel impressed, pray over a pat. Well, I don't know what to say. Pray Scripture back to God. And, and put yourself in, in the scripture. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And pray about that for a little bit. Um, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, I, David, can do all things today on my to-do list that God deems are important enough. I can do those things through Christ who gives me strength. Uh, or surrender your, your plans to him for that day. And say, Lord, you know what needs to happen and what things can be bumped. And so I pray that you'll help me to prioritize. Anyway, I think you get the idea, but I would encourage you to spend every day. And you could even close every day with a little thought. There's plenty of books out there uh, that have nice little thoughts. We have several back here. I mentioned Steps to Christ. Uh, well, I need to read it every, you know, a chapter. No, you don't have to worry about a chapter. Just read a page or two pages before you put your, your eyes to sleep at night and before you have prayer time. Um, that is meaningful, and that helps ground us, and you would be surprised, <clears throat> I don't know if I dare say this, but I've always been a little bit uh, too honest, right? 
I don't know if that's a, a good thing. But uh, each of you have a library at home. Uh, and you spend time in that library every day. Maybe you keep a basket in that room. You know which room I'm talking about? That's the room that you go to every day to do a little paperwork. You'd be surprised at the blessings, and I'm not trying to be irreverent, but that's just time. We're supposed to be soaking in God's word all the time. And people say, well, I don't have any time. You do have time. And, and even when you're doing paperwork, there can be something to grab. It doesn't have to be a magazine or whatever. You can grab something and be blessed. I hope you forgive me for that if you think that's out of line. I'm not trying to be out of line. I'm just trying to feed on God's word all the time. Some of you commute a lot. You have long ways to travel. Um, there are all kinds of ways now that you can get media. You can listen to the Bible. You can, uh, which I found personally to be kind of hard for me not to get distracted, but I love to listen to sermons. Well, where should I go to find sermons? Well, there's a lot of places that you can go. You can listen to our radio station. Sometimes we have sermons on there and other things. Uh, 97.3, isn't that what it is? Don't just set one preset, set them all. Uh, that's the only thing I listen to when I'm listening to the radio. But the other thing I like to listen to is called audio verse. Audio verse. Just spell audio, no space, verse. And I think it's .org or .com. Probably either one will work. And it's filled with sermons, literally thousands of sermons. And I would say thousands of really good sermons. Uh, and I get blessed, and you can either go by topic, you can go by presenter, uh, you can go by things that are, are trending. You know, sometimes there's sermons that are, are very popular, and people are just saying, I'm blessed by this. And there's a number that says, you know, so many a day, and that really is how many thousand a day uh, are listening around the world to Audioverse. And you can get it on your smartphone. I have it on my smartphone. You can download it if you have to travel out in the the deep bush somewhere, and you're not gonna, or you can download them at home on Wi-Fi first. You can put them on an iPod and fill up an iPod. Uh, there was a time I got that big iPod with 160 gigs just to fill up with sermons because I it took me so long to figure out how to do all this stuff. I just did it once and for all, and I filled it up chock full, and I just listened for like a year. You'd be surprised at how that will feed you when you're when you're just taking in God's word over and over and over in all the gaps of your day. And when you say you have no time, you'd be surprised how much, and your brain just picks up right where you left off. Do I ever finish a sermon? Rarely. But then I pick it up right where I left off. When I exercise, the same thing. I like to, to watch or listen to a sermon or that kind of thing. So think about the cracks in your day that you can try and fill it up uh, with something meaningful, right? <clears throat> what does this have to do with hell? Well, not much. So we're going to have prayer and we're going to get started. Um, but you just got that for free. I'm not going to charge you for that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this wonderful, beautiful day, for your Sabbath day. And I pray that the people here were able to find rest. I pray for the individual that maybe is, is trying out this idea of a Sabbath rest, maybe for the first time or, or you know, it's just kind of in the initial phases here. I pray a special blessing on that person. And as we delve into tonight's topic and what the Bible says about the destruction of the wicked, I pray that it will be very clear uh, and that your Holy Spirit will help us to understand what your word has to say to us tonight. In your name we pray, amen. 
All right. Revelation's Lake of Fire. This is a picture that somebody grabbed. It dates back to February 23, 1991. In fact, if you look at the picture closely, I think photography has maybe advanced a little bit. Maybe you can't tell uh, through the screen. Um, but this is a picture taken in Kuwait. The, the, uh, when Iraq fled, it decided to light before he left. Saddam Hussein said light 90%. Well, he probably said light 100%, but it ended up about 90% of all the oil fields were lit up. Now, that's what you call not nice. And this was a huge ecological issue because these things were just billowing smoke and all kinds of things and ash into the air. And it was just ongoing, just this constant inferno, 24-7. Just, I mean, the whole country practically seemed like it was engulfed in flames. I mean, look at all this. I mean, this is a picture from, I don't know, maybe it's not terribly high up, but look at these flames here. How far back would you have to be and still be able to feel that? You know, you have a bonfire the size of this table and you can be on the other side of this room and still feel it, right? Uh, not to mention the waste. And I already mentioned the impact on the, uh, the planet. And so it was decided very quickly, we got to get these fires out. Well, how do you put a, a fire out of, of oil that's just burning so incredibly hot? Um, but that's what they had to do. That was their task. And so they had these long things and hoses and these guys trying to get up close and these shields and the whole bit. And they worked and they worked and they worked and they worked. It took months, many months to try and get all these fires out. But it was very plain, very quickly to the entire planet. We've got to put it out. It can't just keep burning and burning and burning and burning. And so tonight we're going to be talking about a fire, uh, hellfire. Does it keep burning and burning and burning forever? Here's a picture from up in the sky at that time and all these fires that were going. What does the book of Revelation have to say about this? Well, it says, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. There you have it in Revelation 14, verse 10. And then in verse 11, and the smoke of their torment ascends, how long? Forever and ever. See? This is a fire that's going forever and ever and ever and ever. Is that what it says? Well, it looks like, I mean, it's ascending forever and ever. Does God want some disaster called hell burning forever and ever? That's what we're looking at. Revelation 21 verse 2 says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. So if the new Jerusalem is going to descend, and we looked at this last night, if it's going to descend on this planet, and God's going to make all things new, how does that coexist with an ever-burning, constantly going fire? It doesn't coexist very well, does it? And we could also ask the question, what, what part of Revelation is telling us the truth? This part in Revelation 21 or where we saw just a minute ago in Revelation 14? Which passage is God lying to us in? Neither. I would say this is a fence post. If you were here the night I talked about fence posts, there's some verses that seem like it's out of sync. It's out of line. It's on this other side. But as we look at the whole of Scripture, 
and compare scripture with scripture, I think we'll be able to pull those things that seem out of line in line. That's what we're going to attempt to do tonight. Revelation 20 verse 9 says, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. We looked at this last night as well. This is when every knee is already bowed, every tongue is already confessed, but they, they hate God. They want to destroy God. So they make one final charge against the city and fire comes down, this strange act, and consumes them and consumes sin, consumes the devil. Somebody said, well, what about the evil angels? Them too, gone once and for all in these fiery flames. We talked about how the holy city descends, the wicked dead are resurrected, Satan and his followers attack the city, and the wicked are devoured by the flames. We saw that last night. Do you remember? That's where you shake your head and say, "Uh uh-huh. Maybe you weren't here last night. If not, there's some CDs and there's some study guides in the back that you can review. And it says, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And so I imagine that the whole planet probably... Because sin is not in an isolated country or an isolated hemisphere or an isolated continent. It's around the world, isn't it? So you're literally going to have something that appears, something like this, I suppose. Fire everywhere. That's going to be hot. That's going to consume all the sin. Blessed and holy is he who is part of the first resurrection. That's the one we decided last night we want to be part of. By God's grace, over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And that was, again, last night's topic. So now looking at the second death, the first death is the death that we each die as the natural result of living in a sinful world, unless, of course, we're alive when Jesus comes, right? But otherwise, everyone that has died up to this point has died the first death. But there is a second death the Bible talks about. The second death is the eternal death. And even in my own language, I have to describe eternal, meaning not eternal that I continue to die forever. Eternal, meaning the effects are eternal. Does that make sense? Yeah. So the second death is the eternal death and result of personal rebellion against God. So Revelation 21 verse 1 says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. Now if there was a hot spot in the middle of the earth, or if hell continued to burn and burn and burn and burn and burn and burn, wouldn't there be some crying? Wouldn't there be some mourning? Wouldn't there be some wailing? Wouldn't there be some heartache? I think there certainly would. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. What does it mean to pass away? They're gone. They're They're done. They're finished. They've been consumed. And they're no longer in existence. So if that day is going to come, if we're ever going to arrive at that time, I mean, how many of you parents could enjoy, I don't know, I was going to say a vacation, but how many of you could enjoy a date knowing that your loved ones were suffering in the midst of that time. Or, or your kids are suffering. Um, well, we couldn't find a babysitter, so I just locked up the kids in the dog crate. Figure if we come and let them out every four hours, everything will be just fine. Are you going to have a good time? <laughs> no. <laughs> Maybe the husband could, but the wife would never be able to concentrate on anything. All right? <clears throat> 
Never mind DSS and the whole rest of that. <clears throat> so God is eventually going to do away with sin altogether. God do away with not only sin, but suffering, pain, and hell forever. Um, you think back of all the horrific things that have happened on this planet and continue to happen. It's not just in the past. In fact, anybody who's in law enforcement, even in this country, will say it is so much worse in Henderson County. I heard it just last week. It's so much worse in Henderson County than it was just five years ago, just 10 years ago. They say every day it gets worse. That's what they're saying. Some Christians, some not Christian, they're just saying we're seeing more of everything all the time. All the time. Would you want to torment your worst enemy for trillions of years? I don't know who your worst enemy is, but would you really literally want them to burn? I mean, eternity isn't a hundred years, and it's not a thousand years. It's not a million or billion or a trillion. I mean, it just goes and goes and goes and goes. What point would that serve? Here, I, I mean, let's say I was just the worst sinner I could possibly be for my entire life. Now, if I'm a terrible sinner and I just take it to the nth degree, I'm probably not going to live very long. But let's suppose the devil blesses me and I live for a hundred years. What sense would it make to sin royally for a hundred years and then be tortured with imaginable pain for trillions and trillions and trillions of years, and I can't even imagine how big that number is. What does that do to this whole argument in the great controversy that God is fair and just and true? You know, my, my little kid grabs a cookie. I told him not to take a cookie. He disobeyed me. And so I'm going to spank him now from this moment to eternity. How does that make sense? And so you have reasoning, thinking Christians that, that they say, I can't accept this. If this is the God that the Bible talks about, I don't want anything to do with him. And I can't fault them for that. I really can't. Because I don't want anything to do with that God either. So what have we done? Have we just come up with a crafty little way to weasel around something? Or is this truly what the Bible says? Well, let's see. Dr. John Stott uh, he's a fairly well-known, I don't know if you all have heard of him or not, but he's a fairly well-known scholar. Um, he belongs to the Anglican church, and he, never, he no longer believes in an ever-burning hell from his own study. He says, I don't believe in an ever-burning hell. In fact, it's rather surprising, um, having gone to seminary and, you know, you read in commentaries and this commentary and that commentary, it can be rather surprising at times when people truly are Bible scholars in the sense that they're wanting to know exactly what the Bible says, the context, and they're, they're delving into words and meanings and the original languages and on and on and on, they might claim a religion, but they believe all kinds of things that that religion doesn't believe. And you come across that pretty, pretty often. You say, wait a second, I thought this guy was a, a Presbyterian or a Baptist or a Methodist or whatever it is. But they will say in their commentary something quite contrary to their denomination because they're just going with what the word says. John Stott is an example of that, especially in this area of an ever-burning hell. He says the, the Bible doesn't support it, even though he claims a denomination. Here's one maybe you've heard of uh, because the media has popular, made it popular. How about that? <clears throat> he has a website. I just went here the other day, Edward Fudge Ministries. 
and uh, he has his own book. In fact, here's his book, The Fire That Does What? Consumes. You know, that goes against everything we know about fire, too. The hotter the fire, the more it consumes, and, and probably the faster it consumes. We had an issue at our house just the other day. Somebody flipped on the, the fan in the bathroom, and it was going to heat the house, right? Or heat the bathroom. And all of a sudden, it makes all this noise. And, and I actually was over in Charlotte uh, on Thursday, and Elizabeth is calling me, and I'm in this meeting. I say, I'm in the meeting. She says, I need you to step out of the meeting and take my call. Okay, so I come out. What's going on? And she says, there's smoke coming out of the bathroom, and it's up in the attic, and we turned the fan off, but now I'm afraid that the, the house is, is on fire. And so I, I'm troubleshooting with her and trying to talk to her, and well, is this, well, it's kind of stuck, but there was ashes that came down, and it was, it was quite the little scare. The kids ran outside. This is just Thursday. They ran outside, and they're crying, and Marianne's shaking, and Matthew's praying, dear Jesus, please don't let our house burn down. <laughs> uh, and I think, I still don't know exactly what happened. There's a box up there where the fan is, and something got in there and was on the coil, and something was making a fair bit of smoke. What that something is, we haven't figured that out yet. But we have that fan switch taped off. We're not touching that for, for now until we get that checked out. But the idea of a smoldering fire is what scared Elizabeth at the time, by the time I talked to her. What if there's something in the attic and it's smoldering? In fact, somebody in this church had some issue where it smoldered for quite some time until all of a sudden a good bit of the house and then just boom. I mean, flames have a way of just popping sometimes, right? It's smoldering and it's just kind of red and all of a sudden poof and it goes. But the hotter the fire, the faster it's going to consume whatever it is. True? Yeah. So for a hellfire and brimstone preacher to be talking about how hot the fire is, but it doesn't consume anything, that doesn't make a lot of sense. From everything that God's shown us about what fire does here, it doesn't make much sense. Um, sometimes people say, well, you don't believe in hellfire. No, I do believe in hellfire. I believe in one that's a lot hotter than you do, maybe because it actually burns it up and it consumes everything. So anyway, he wrote a book, The Fire That Consumes. And the more he studied this, and some of you may have seen this, this film, uh, I would recommend this film, Hell and Mr. Fudge. It's, uh, it's not your high budget film, but I think they've done a good job. I really do. And it talks about he, how he came across all these passages and he went up against the establishment at the school and the university and his professors and all these things with all these questions and he went back and forth on some debates and various things. You need to pay attention to this, I think. Um, and in fact, we're going to have a couple of these for sale in the back. So you'll have to uh, fight over them, I guess. I don't know. But um, the idea of an ever-burning hell for trillions of years is really a pagan doctrine and it's blasphemy to a God of love. Would you agree with that? Amen. I would agree with that. Thinking Christians have a hard time with that. So questions about hell. When does hell occur? We want to look at that. Is hell a hot spot burning the center of the earth right now? We're going to look at that. Number three, how long does hell last? And number four, how can a loving God destroy those he loves? Fair questions. Um, hell is the final destruction of the wicked that purifies the earth at the end of time when they are totally consumed. Totally consumed. When God consumes sin, he consumes those who cling 
to sin. Really, he doesn't want to consume anybody. And we're going to look at that text before the night's done too. He doesn't wish that any would perish, but all would come to repentance. So the bigger the fire, the quicker the death. That's what makes sense to me. Malachi 4.1 says, For behold, the day is coming. Do you notice that? Good, because I underlined it. The day is coming, burning like an oven, and all the proud, yes, all who do wickedly, will be stubble. Okay? And the day which is coming, in case you missed it the first time or the second time, the third time, which is coming, shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. What happened to your homework? It done got burned up. What does that mean? Well, it's still burning my bag right now. No, it means it's gone. It burned up. It's consumed. I don't know if that, you know, the terminology, I mean, we use that all the time. Does that mean burned up as in the smoke went up, the thing is gone? I don't know, but it's, it's gone. It burned up. I'm glad my house didn't burn up because then I wouldn't have a house. Right? So the day which is coming shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts, that will leave them neither root nor branch. There's going to be nothing left. I mean, if you have a real fire, fire can get hot enough to burn things that aren't supposed to burn. Right? I remember as a kid doing some construction. And that was back when they would just about burn everything. Well, now there's all kinds of restrictions and we're not supposed to burn stuff. Right? And I agree with that. But... What about this glass, I would ask. Mr. DeGray, what do you want to do with all the glass? Throw it in the fire. I said, well, that's not going to burn. He's like, we'll get it hot enough, it'll burn. I think you can say that about most things. You get it hot enough, it'll burn. And nothing will be left. Hell is not a hot spot in the center of the earth. According to that passage, it says it's a time that will come. Not a time that is presently. So it's not a hot spot in the center of the earth. It is the final destruction of the wicked at the end of time. In fact, when we looked at the thousand-year period, we talked about how beautiful it was that God doesn't destroy anybody permanently, forever, make any final decisions until it's plain and he answers all the questions, right? Then and only then is wickedness and sin consumed and burned up. That's the only time, and God says, do not pass go, do not collect $200, that's it. But only until he answers every question. 2 Peter 3, 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he's reserving a day for that. I would submit to you that means it's not today. That day will come at the end of the thousand years. Uh, as we talked a little bit about last night. So the destruction of the wicked. The wicked will be burned up in the future. Number, oh, I thought we were going to go number two. Malachi 4.3. You shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles. Am I wearing any shoes? Under the soles of your feet. I'm barefoot. They shall, you shall trample the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that's a hot fire. I don't think God is talking about walking on coals. What do they call that? Fire walking? I don't think this is what this text is talking about. I think this text is talking about a time that the the wicked are burned up, they are consumed, sin is consumed, and it's, it's gone. It ceases to exist, and time passes enough to where the ashes cool down. 
and you can walk on them. And it doesn't hurt your bare feet. Your bare winter feet. Anybody here have tough feet at the end of the summer growing up as a kid? Man, I could step on nails by the end of the summer, but in the spring, I had little pansy feet. I don't think it matters if you have pansy feet or tough feet. You're going to be able to walk on the ashes of the wicked. The wicked will be turned to ashes, not burned continually for millions and trillions of years. Would God really enjoy all eternity when the redeem, with the redeemed if he was continually conscious of the screams of the wicked in hell? Would he? Would you? That'd be awfully tough. Be awfully tough. Psalm 37, 20, But the wicked shall perish, and the enemies of the Lord, like the splendor of the meadows, shall vanish. Into smoke they shall vanish away. Still, more texts, and we could provide more texts than we really have time for, that talk about a conclusion and a finality to this idea of wickedness and sin and all that kind of thing. So the wicked will be burned in the future, then the wicked will be consumed and burned up and turned to ashes. And so now we have to deal with this question. What does the Bible mean when it uses the expression everlasting destruction or eternal fire? Because that's what people really, that's where this idea, I think, large, I mean, pagan ideas too. But people will point to these passages and see, say, see, there it is. So we need to answer that question. Hebrews 9.12 says, Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption. How did Jesus obtain eternal redemption? Well, he's still hanging on the cross today. And tomorrow and the next day and the next day, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Is that what's happening? No. He did it once. And the effects of that once go for how long? Eternal. Eternal, eternal, eternal. Hebrews 6.2, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. That means we judge forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? No. We judge, and the effects of that judgment are eternal. We're not going to go back and change things or have second chances. I mean, you judge and the effects are eternal. Does that make sense? So the results of redemption and judgment will be everlasting. But notice it's the results that are everlasting. Does that make sense? Okay. Judah 1.7, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. This is fire that burns forever and ever, isn't it? I don't think so. Sodom and Gomorrah, what the text say, is an example of what will happen at the end of time. So I, I just have a simple question. Is Sodom and Gomorrah still burning today? And if so, where? It's not still burning. If it was, it would be a tourist hotspot. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to do that. <clears throat> I really honestly didn't. But it would be a tourist attraction, wouldn't it? Come see the ever-burning fires of Sodom and Gomorrah. 
They've never gone out, ever, 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 and they're going to be burning forever, ever, ever, ever. I think you and I would know about it. I think we could go home tonight and Google how to get tickets to go see the eternal burning fire of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's actually underwater right now from what archaeologists tell us, and it's not burning there either. So if that's the example of what's going to happen at the end, maybe we should take note of the fact that eternal fire does not mean it's burning forever and ever and ever, but the effects of that fire are eternal. You're not going to undo it. You're not going to reconstruct your homework from the smoke in the air. The effects of your homework getting burned up are eternal. You can redo the homework, but anyway. 2 Peter 2.6 and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. We have it again. An example. Fire came down on Sodom and Gomorrah. And everything was what? Consumed, burned up. Turned into ashes. So an eternal fire is one whose effects or results are eternal. Everlasting punishment is one punishment whose effects are, or results are eternal. Notice the Bible, and this isn't a verse, but we're, I, I think we have a verse. Maybe I should wait till we see those. But everlasting punishment is not everlasting punishing. There's a difference. If we have any English majors in here, everlasting punishment has a conclusion to it. If it doesn't, then it's going to be everlasting punish. In. See the difference? There's a difference. We're talking punishment that's everlasting. The effects are everlasting. They, 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 you can't change it. Okay? So it's punishment, everlasting punishment. Philippians 3.18, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. The Greek word for destruction is one of the strongest words in the entire Bible. It means to be utterly consumed or totally destroyed. So even doing a word study on that word destruction, it's very plain and very clear that this has an end to it. Okay? And so all of this mythology and all the rest um, comes from all kinds of pagan things that are not rooted in Scripture. God's plan has always included loving invitations to save people. And again, people say, well, what kind of a God is that? Who holds a gun up to my head and says, either love me or I'm going to burn you in hell. That's a twisted view of the situation. The situation is sin will kill you. You have AIDS or you have Ebola and you will die. I will die. And the only hope for us is to go down to Atlanta and look at those people with the yellow suits. I know this is a little bit old, and we have something else. It's a Zika virus now, right? Have mercy. But the point is, we have Ebola. We are destined to die. And our only hope is to try and get the treatment that can turn that around. And that's happened for some. Jesus is that treatment. And he is calling out to us, I don't want you to perish. I don't want you to die. I want you to get the treatment that you need. Well, what kind of an option is that? You're forcing me. No, I'm not forcing you. I'm just begging you. You don't have to go through this. 
All right. Matthew 7, 13, for wide is the gate and broad the way that leads to destruction. So the fate of the wicked, the wicked will die. We know that. Romans 6, 23, the wicked will perish. See that in Luke 13, 3, the wicked will be burned up. Malachi 4, 1, and the wicked will be utterly consumed. Psalm 37, 20, and the wicked will be turned into ashes. Malachi 4, 3, the wicked will be though they had not been, Obadiah 16, and Satan will be totally and completely destroyed. I'm looking forward to that day. I really am. We can either be in this situation or we can accept this invitation. Yes, the body dies in hell, but the soul keeps on suffering, right? You're just talking about the body. <laughs> tricky, tricky. Y'all always come up with good questions. Ezekiel 18, 20, the soul, the body, what does it say? Somebody look that up in your Bible. Is that what it, the soul that sinneth, it shall live forever. It shall die. That goes back to that, uh, when was that, Wednesday night? Where we talked about what constitutes a soul, right? And this is talking about the soul that sinneth, it shall die. This is one of many, many verses that we have. What about the Bible expression, unquenchable fire? I just have to say it with a southern drawl. Is that okay? If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go, than to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched. Oh, have mercy. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What does that mean? The fire's not quenched. This sounds terrible. Friends, if your house goes up in smoke, there's a point in that fire that the fire department may show up from four different counties, but that fire's not going to be quenched. You know what I'm talking about? It's too far gone. There was that point when it was just smoldering that you could have just snuffed it out or put your hose to it or something, but there comes a point like those pictures we saw in the beginning, those enormous fires, I don't care how many garden hoses you get. It's going to have to be something bigger than that. There's a fire that will not be quenched. That's all it's talking about. This is a fire that will not be put out until it fully does its work. All of it. It just won't be quenched. Isaiah 66, 24, and they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. They shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. What is that? The worm shall not die. That's simply saying, you know, the worm that eats our flesh is going to finish its work too. Uh, it's just more of a, a symbolic way of talking about it, but it's saying death is going to come and you're not going to be able to stop it. You're not going to be able to stop it. Jeremiah 17, 27, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. There you have it again. So an unquenchable fire is one that no human hand can put out. Can't be done. In Revelation, we have this. 
He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, if that doesn't sound like an ever-burning hell, I don't know what does. Oh, boy, I should have thought before I put that text on the screen. Well, forever in the Bible can be translated until the end of the age. Now, that's a, a key point. Sometimes that word is translated forever. Sometimes it's translated to the end of the age. But either way, when it says forever, it means until the end of the age. That makes a big difference. Let's look at some examples because you you may not be believing me. Um, But it sometimes refers to a limited time. Exodus 21, 6. Then his master shall bring him to the judges and he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Is that servant still serving his master from back when this was done thousands of years ago? No, to the end of the age, and that age is expired. Yeah. Forever in the passage refers to a limited amount of time, the life of the slave. It's kind of understood. Does that make sense? Jonah, chapter 2, verse 6. I love that picture. These are called sweet lips, by the way. I'm a vegetarian, but I hear these are very tasty fish. I'm distracted easily. Jonah 2, verse 6. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Was he down in, in, in the whale forever? No, till the end of that age, until the end of that time period. Jonah was in the belly of the whale forever or until the end of the age, until it was time for him to come out. So he had to be careful. You know, anybody here that speaks a second language or third or fourth or eighth language, you understand that to be a good translator is challenging. If you don't know a second language or haven't studied a second language, that concept can be lost. But the idea... That this one word, we're always going to translate with this one word, doesn't always work. In fact, many times it doesn't work. Sometimes this word over here needs three words over here. Or this word in this context is said this way, but when you use it over here, you have to say it and go around and around and around another way. So you can't just say this word equals that word. And especially when you get into biblical languages, you have a word that has all kinds of nuance and meaning and I mean, you've heard pastors go on and on about love and how there's different kinds of love and the different words for love. But in our English Bibles, it just says love. I love my cat and I love my wife. (laughs) What? Oh, yeah, and I love playing golf and I love Jesus. Well, in that sense, our English language is pretty weak. Now, we we can add words to that, right? Um to help us in our English language, but in the, in the Greek language and Hebrew language and, and other th- these languages, just the word itself denotes a meaning beyond what we have in English. So we had to be careful of that when we're looking in our Bibles as well. And so that's why sometimes we had to go back to the original. First Samuel 1 Samuel 1.22, I will take him that he may appear. This is Hannah and her little son, Samuel, you might remember. She's taken him to the priest. She says, I, Hannah, will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. He's not still serving there. Does that make sense? 
Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. It answers it for us. How long is forever in this situation? As long as he lives. He shall be lent to the Lord. So, in Revelation where it says I'll burn forever, it's really to the end of the age or as long as somebody lives. Does that make sense? Now, I will submit the fact that if the only verses we had on the destruction of the wicked is the one in Revelation, I, I will fully concede that we would probably have a problem. Now, we could get into the millennium, which we already talked about. We could get into the state of the dead. We could get into some other things. But we just have that one text, and that fence could go in any direction you wanted it to. Are you with me? But when we have all these other verses, and the fence seems to be lining up this way, and then we come across that verse that seems a little bit vague, I think we've just found a good reason that we can pull that one into line. Does that make sense? And I think that's important. Is it the clearest text that we have? No. But can it also mean what all these other texts mean? It can. And I think that's important to recognize. So what about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Do you remember the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? This man dies. And be well, before this guy dies, he was, he was begging always to the rich and all the rest. And they both die. And the rich man, does he go to heaven like everybody thought he would? No, he goes to hell. And the poor man, does he go to hell like everybody thought he would? No, he goes to heaven. And so everything is kind of backwards and upside down. And people point to this parable and they say, see, this is what happens when you die. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. Now keep in mind, a parable is intended to teach one main point. And if we start picking apart every tiny piece of a parable, even this parable, we have some problems. What are some of those problems? Well, it's a literal story. If it is literal, fully, Abraham's bosom must be very large. We've had various pictures of heaven and what it looks like. We're going to have to scrap all of that, and we're going to have a big, hairy chest. I don't like that idea, do you? That seems odd. Number two, can people in heaven really see people in hell, and do they talk to each other? This is a common story that was often told that Jesus twists around as well. But if this is really reality of how it is, if it's literal, that I'm in heaven and I can have a conversation with somebody in hell, whoa, how am I going to enjoy heaven when I can hear, let's say my family rejects God and I'm listening to them the whole time I'm in heaven. How can I enjoy heaven? That doesn't make sense either, does it? Third, do souls have fingers and eyes and tongues? I mean, all this figurative language no. And so this is a string of one of, I think it's five different parables. And the main point is what decisions you make here on this earth determine your destiny. It's not what everybody thinks. And they thought, well, if you're rich and you're healthy and you're wealthy, then obviously you're going straight to heaven. And Jesus says, not so. That's not a free ticket. They thought, well, that means the Lord's blessing you and blessing you and blessing you. No, not necessarily. Right? And everything is, is switched around. Um, here's the wealth. Everybody thought if you were wealthy, God blessed you, and so on. The parable's true meaning. Here it is. Riches are not necessarily a sign of divine favor. There is no second chance after death. He says, oh, just let, us, let me go back and warn my friend. He says, no, that's not, we can't do that. It doesn't work that way. And miracles are not a sign of divine favor. He says, well, maybe if you just, you know, 
In fact, right not long after this parable, he does an incredible miracle with somebody also named, what was his name, what was his name? Lazarus. And all of a sudden, he did that incredible miracle in the sight of all these doubters, and all the doubters believed. Is that what the Bible says? No, they continue to doubt. No miracle is going to supersede God's word. It's not. Especially in a time when Revelation talks about there's going to be false miracles and false signs. We have to trust God's word. And if we're not going to trust God's word with or without miracles, we're not going to change our mind. That's the point of this parable. Um, if you still have questions, we can talk more about that, but I'm going to keep going. Matthew 13, 50 says, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All these talking about hellfire. Okay. We don't have to experience the second death. And ultimately, you know, we get so caught up in this idea of, of fire and pain. That's going to go by so quickly in this unquenchably hot fire. Really, the second death is all about separation from God. And Jesus experienced that second death. He was separated from God, wasn't he? And we say, oh, well, God doesn't understand what I'm going through. Friends, you don't understand what Jesus went through for you. He went through something that by God's grace, we will never have to go through. And that's the second death. Jesus literally went to hell for you and I. He experienced hell. And what's at the, the heart of hell? It's not the pain. Was it painful? Yes. Were the nails real? Yes. Was the crown of thorns real? Yes. All of that was real. But at the heart of it was the separation that he felt from his father as he pulled away and allowed Jesus to feel the weight and the guilt of your sin and my sin. So that we don't have to experience the second death. We don't have to pay for our own sins. And he offers us an invitation. Ezekiel 18, 23. Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Says the Lord God. And not that he should turn from his ways and live. Do you hear the tears in his voice? I don't want this for anyone. I don't want this for you. Sin will ultimately destroy you, but there's a way that you can live. I am the way and the truth and the life. And I think even in this idea of hellfire, we see that God is fair and he's just and he's true. He's given every opportunity for people to choose him. To the point where even last night, even the wicked, even the devil, even his angels, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that God is fair, that he's just, that he's true, that he's, he's judged rightly in every single case. And then and only then is the strange act where the wicked are completely destroyed as they try to wage war on the city one last time. And sin is annihilated once and for all. That'll be sobering. If by God's grace... And there's no reason we can't be. If by God's grace we're up in the sea, that's going to be a sobering thing to take in. That'll be a hard thing to take in, a sad thing to take in. But it will be done. It will be finished. 
four times I think we have in Scripture, creation at the end, he says, it is finished. What's the next time? At the cross, he said, it is finished. When he comes to the second coming after the seven last plagues and we think there's no hope anywhere, he says, it is finished. And after this, he says, it's finished. Sin is finished. Once and for all, it's done. It's purged. It's consumed. It's over. And on that day, true eternity begins with Jesus. Where all of that is done away with. Everything's been paid in full. Sin is eradicated. The devil is gone. It's like this time of year being 10 years old and summer break comes. No more homework, no more stress. I'm just going to kick off my shoes and go play in the creek every day. That's what it's going to be. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Good news. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have paid it all. You take on what each of us here deserves, that we may receive what you deserve. Lord, that hardly seems fair, but that's what you've done for us. Lord, may that incredible sacrifice not be made for any of us here tonight in vain. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.